Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting episode of The Tennis Tragic. Uh, with me as always are my co-hosts, Alex and Matt. Uh, my name is David, I'm here in Austin, Texas. It's the third day of the US Open, and we have coordinated a meeting time across continents to try and get together and chat about some of the going-ons in the tennis world. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, how are you guys doing today? Good, thanks David. Um... Over here in Sydney, I'm in bed. Um, I'm coming to you from my bed. <laughs> nice. I'm coming to you barely away. I mean, I've had half a cup of coffee and, uh, you know, maybe some off-brand uh, stimulants, but really things aren't going, going too strong yet. So, I don't know, maybe we just get into things. Uh, you know, we'll start... We'll find our groove. It always takes a few minutes anyway. I mean, I think yeah. this is, I'm developing some respect for like, you know, the professional podcasters yeah. out there. They just seem ready to go. Just skip through this section, um, dear listener. And um, yeah, in a few minutes, we'll be warmed up. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, what do, what do we know, you guys? We know. <laughs> we know. Round one of the U.S. Open for 2019 is complete for singles. And it was hectic. How do you feel about round one? It was hectic. Huh. It was hectic. Yesterday was it hectic. Was, yeah. It feels like so much happened. It feels like there were so many long five-set matches on the men's side. There were a lot of upsets. There were a lot of big matchups. Like the, There were some matchups which you could see generally happening in rounds two or three or even further in, all happening in round one. Um, uh, the most disappointing thing over here in Australia is that because it was such a stacked round one, there are a lot of matches happening while we were asleep. Uh, like Sitsipas and Rublev, is the, is the, that was my pick of, of the round one. That was my pick before it started and it sounds like it delivered, although I didn't really get to watch much of it or any of it. I saw some highlights, but did you see that one, David? I did. Yeah, I was work. I was quote unquote working at the time, but uh, I had it on for, for much of the match, probably starting around the second set. Um, yeah. Rublev was hitting the tire out of the ball. It was a really gritty, intense match. And also it just had some of that like Stefano Tsitsipas drama that I love. I don't uh, recall him breaking any shoelaces. Um, one of you guys shared a picture of his feet. Um, yeah, I saw. I like, guess saw a picture you know, get shared around, and and um, it looks like Adidas have finally heard the waves of criticism coming over them, and have given him a little little flap over his shoelaces to stop them ripping every time he slides his foot on his forehand. So that's pretty funny that they've taken that step. Yeah. Uh, guess it yeah, works. he had to he had to find some new ways new ways to like you know really get get into people's get into his opponent's head. So he was he was cramping through most of the fourth set, um, which is really you know disappointing. It's hard to watch, but he was like he was really making a game effort of it at the time. Like he even he managed to break Rublev. Uh, Rublev was serving the match, uh, and somehow. Pass like running around there on one leg he just starts ripping balls you know he's like he can't actually move that well so he's trying to end points as quickly as possible and uh yeah. yeah it's like one of those classic situations in tennis where suddenly 
you know, somebody just has no more options. And so they go for it. And uh, yeah, it looked for a minute there, like the fourth set was going to head to a tie break. And, but you know, uh, he was also getting frustrated with the umpire because the umpire wouldn't give him more time to, uh, to, you know, work on his cramping. And, uh, and so he called the umpire a weirdo. Weirdo. Yeah, he's like, why are you guys all weirdos? I think that's what he said. He he insinuated he said, because that all you're umpires French. were like a class of human beings. No, it was it was a French. Oh, he said it was a French okay, thing. that's the racist bit. Yeah. 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 Oh, it was a French thing. I thought it was an umpire no, thing. No, 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 no. It was specifically French, which was more made uh, a lot worse. Okay, now I'm now I'm yeah, now I'm with you, Alex. I thought he, I thought it was just an um thing. Like I thought hanging out with Nick Curios had like kind of poisoned his mind. You know, well, and, and now he was in this position where he thinks like, well, yeah, I mean, uh, in his, in Kyrgios's last match, uh, he did call Fergus Murphy a potato. And now in Sitsipas's match, he's gone and called the French, you're all, oh, you must be because you're French, you're all weirdos now. So maybe it is, you know, <laughs> there is a correlation there, who knows? Yeah, that's sad. I mean, this is what happens when kids hang out with bad influences, you know? Who's he hanging out with? Nick Kyrgios. The ultimate, oh, yeah. the well, ultimate bad problem. influence. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if they're actually hanging out. Apparently, Nick Curios, uh, yeah, there's lots of rumors about Nick's love life going around. Um, and uh, another match that happened last night, Sloane Stevens lost to uh, my sister from Russia, Anna Kalinskaya. <laughs> and um, apparently, apparently, Anna, Anna and Nick, have, you know, have been spotted hanging out or I think he showed up in her box at, at, a, at a recent match in Washington. Well, yeah, you mentioned this so, uh, today in the chat. And then just after you mentioned it, uh, Kyrgios posted a, a photo of a photo on his Instagram stories of them two together. It looked like they were out at some club and the ca- little caption he put on top of it was, the look I get when you when I see you doing your thing or something, and he was like looking at her kind of longingly or something. So maybe it's, it sounds like there might be some truth to that. Well, well, well. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting news. I wish I had more to say about Anna Kalinskaya, but you know she's just a tennis player. She's a woman. Um, I, <laughs> I watched her beat Sloane Stevens. Um, there isn't a lot that seemed to distinguish her personality wise, not a very big personality. I mean, maybe Nick just needs like kind of some calming influences in his life. Mm. Maybe she needs some excitement in her life. Some, <laughs> someone who's a little unpredictable. Yeah. Someone to break her out of her shell. Apparently after her, her victory over Sloane Stevens, she did go over to watch his match. Cause um, I think her match was the last on Arthur Ashe and then Louis Armstrong was still going. So you went, she went over to watch um, some of Nick's match. Mm, okay. Yeah. The ESPN commentators were speculating. That's why she wanted to, to finish the match with Sloan quickly, you know, <laughs> um, which would be quite an arrogant move, yeah. right? Like she had never, uh, Kalinskaya had <laughs> never won a main draw match at a slam before. So she's like, I gotta just, I gotta just finish. Yeah, let's Sloan. wrap this up. But apparently, yeah. Sloan, you know, I mean, Sloan was not playing well. Okay, well, she's um, she's what uh, top ten, seated eleven. Well, what just happened there? I'm gonna stop the recording. Hold on. So, uh, so I wanted to talk about umpires being weirdos. Um, so uh, there was this story right before the U.S. Open about uh, Damien Steiner getting terminated for 
for doing unauthorized interviews. Yeah. Yeah, I read about that. Um, did you, why, you read, why aren't they you... authorized to do interviews? Yeah, well, it sounds like they don't really let them do much by the sounds of it because the statement that came out from the ATP, well, I didn't. I don't know if I saw the direct statement or just the paraphrased one in the article, but they were just kind of saying that um, I guess they were justifying the reason they fired him rather than suspended him and they said that uh, first of all, he did did them unauthorized, but the amount of of interviews he did and the content of those interviews would not have been allowed. Any even if he tried to get it authorized, what he did would not have been authorized. So they terminated him. Um, and the some of the stuff I saw, he was talking about um, in the in the Wimbledon final, which he umpired the, the Federer Djokovic one. He was saying that he thought Federer was going to win when he had match, some match points. So I think that kind of, it felt like he was expecting Federer to win in that situation. So that's not so good. I mean, and then, that sounds like a normal thing that an umpire might think during a match. Like, of course, yeah. they're, they're going to think someone looks like winning. It doesn't mean that they they stop being impartial. But I guess it's, you know, you don't normally hear that from an umpire. They 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 um, They've got to be these impartial arbiters that never sort of speak about what they think they just call they just call the match as it happens yeah yeah i guess from like the tennis authority standpoint uh we're colliding again um from the tennis uh you know powers that be i think they just don't uh want there to be any appearance of impropriety even if it's not yeah even if it's not the case like they, they are human beings right yeah it's just like I don't know. I mean, I, you know, you don't want the umpires to ever seem like they're bigger than the sport. I think what happened last year at the U.S. Open um, in the final was, a, I mean, was a major embarrassment for the sport in a lot of ways. Um, but like, you know, one of them and probably the least, you know, it's obviously not charged with all the like, you know, racial tensions of the day or anything or like, you know, accusations of of misogyny. But the umpire was more important than the match in a lot of ways. Like he, he kind of determined the outcome and you know, that's, there's really no place for their ego and all that. So I just wonder though, if we want, you know, like we want a future where we're replacing all the umpires with robots. I mean, yeah, I I don't, I don't want that. Like I like the human element. I think it creates like interesting tensions, but yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. But well, he was actually cited. Carlos Ramos was cited in this whole thing in this article, and and the, as a kind of, as a as an example of how an umpire should carry themselves in the media, and that's to not basically. And you know, they were saying that he's had so many requests for interviews about the U.S. Open women's final, uh, and he has just not done any because I guess because he this just not on the cards. You definitely can't go out and, and do that. So they were kind of talking about that's that's generally how it goes. And then Damien Steiner, I think he'd be after the, the Wimbledon final, he got quite popular or brought a lot of attention in Argentina where he's from. And I think that's where all the interviews were done. And so I think he just maybe got a little bit swept up in a bit of a, I don't know, popular yeah. little moment or something. Yeah, yeah it's what? the first time that an Argentine umpire has... Um, officiated in a Grand Slam final, so he was getting the media interest, and he needed. He, but he should have gone 
Well, according to the ATP, he should have gone to them and asked for permission to do these interviews, but instead he just he just did a whole bunch of interviews, talked about some <laughs> controversial topics, like he and he and suggested rule changes that might yeah um, happen, like not there being no let cords on the serve, so the serve would just be in play. Um, yeah, yeah, I have a feeling like a re- like umpires feel like total dinguses when they have to call let even though the ball clearly didn't hit the net because they're just using that, the that robotic off, you know yeah. indication the machine's I just wrong that. like half the yeah. time so yeah I um i so i didn't realize that damien steiner was the first uh, argentinian uh grand slam final umpire and this makes it seem like even more of a tragedy in a way because like that must have taken a lot of time and effort to build up to that kind of status like to have the the track record and be able to to sit in that chair for a slam final like that's a that's a big honor for that field and you have nowhere else to go now like well he does i mean he can't be appointed by the atp for um grand slams but he still holds his gold badge in umpiring oh okay so he hasn't been stripped of his rank as an umpire but he um, and the ATP doesn't um, doesn't appoint all the officials in the matches. It's also the tournaments appoint officials. So a tournament could decide to appoint him. Um, mm. He just wouldn't have one of the ATP slots. So they, the ATP appoint three chair umpires for the U.S. Open, and he was one of them. Um, well, wow. the other ones must come. The other umpires must be appointed elsewhere. So and I reckon his career is over, but. Uh, yeah, he's not he's not endorsed by the ATP anymore. Well, yeah. best of luck, Damien. If you're listening, yeah. we feel for you. It's better just. I think that the, the the lesson here is it's better to never say anything. I actually think like we're all exposing ourselves uh, by by hosting this podcast. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we could need... be stripped of <laughs> the International Podcast Association. <laughs> Thing. Well, someday when we're all like, you know, we're riding high on the, the fame and the riches that we've accrued from from uh, from our ad revenue, uh, somebody's going to go back into the archives and they're going to find out what we said. Yeah, you know, dig it all up. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, I don't actually. I'm just going to dig it all up. Well, when okay. we're running for mayor or something. <laughs> no, I'm good. No, I don't like, know. We have maybe in the maybe past? we haven't said it yet. Live free. Okay. We named names once, you know. (laughs) Uh, Move on. Um, Okay, let's let's talk about tennis. Uh, What's uh? I don't know. How about see? I here's I have a theory personally. I I kind of was. I don't know. Yesterday, I thought was a there was some really entertaining matches. The first day, I was really not that taken with the play. And um, I kind of have the feeling that there's a bit of a hangover from Wimbledon. Um, You know, the U S opens always, you know, it's interesting in part because it's the last slam of the year. Everybody's been on tour for like eight, nine months now. It's, it's a grind. A lot of people are hurt. Um, And the U S open also tends to have these really oppressive hot conditions. Although this year that's not a problem, but I just, I don't know. Personally, I still can't believe Roger Federer didn't win that match. 
And I feel like <laughs> the entire tennis world is still like, there's this sense. I, I realize that there's just no way the tournament can live up to that match. You know, that that's the sort of match that happens, you know, once every five, 10 years, maybe like with that much on the line between two greats with that kind of dramatic swing late in the match. Um, you know, it, and on the men's side, it just feels like everything is preordained. I mean, half of the draw completely opened up for Rafa Nadal. Um, that I, I don't see anybody beating him before the final right now. I mean, it's, you have to, you have to stretch a little bit. And in the other half, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Djokovic actually kind of has a tough draw. Um, like he may have to play Medvedev in the quarters, uh, Federer in the yeah. semis, potentially. So uh, it's definitely not an easy road for Novak this time. But it's just hard to see. Like I was trying to figure who's the first of those three guys who's going to lose. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Um. The first yeah, of the three the, who's going to lose those guys uh, on the way to the final. I mean, like, I feel like the, the, the tournament doesn't start um, until one of those guys loses. Well, well, Federer will pro- most likely play Goffin in the third round. Third um, or fourth. Oh, fourth round, sorry. Yeah, he'll play him in the fourth round. So I don't see him losing before then. He might have to play Pui in the third round yeah Pui is Pui could be dangerous but probably not it's the same thing with Gofan. I feel like either one of those guys on a, on a great day could beat Federer Federer didn't look good in his first match um he, he played Nagal yeah. which everybody was really amused by the fact that that Nagal is not Rafa Nadal um and uh and he lost the first set but you know I think I yeah, think and is that actually how you say it Nagal? I don't know. How, have you heard an alternate pronunciation? No, I just think because it, it, it looks like Nadal, everyone's pronouncing it like Nadal, but is it Nagel? <laughs> I actually don't know. <laughs> like like Nagel. Nagel's bagels? Yeah. Sumit. <laughs> Sumit Nagal. Oh, yeah, that sounds right. Um, I, think it's, I think it's Nagal. I mean, anyway... Nagal. This guy managed to take a set like he before the match he called Roger Federer a god, <laughs> and then and then proceeded to go out and defeat the god in a set of tennis. But you know Roger just you know he was he was like wearing that scruffy beard thing that that he wears when he's like you know trying to get over like a you know a bad loss for a couple months and uh, <laughs> you know he just was like looking a little emo out there for Roger. I mean he doesn't show you that much. But mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, not that disturbed. Got through the first set, decide, you know, worked it out, uh, played good tennis. I think Roger doesn't even bother uh, practicing anymore, really. Like, I think he just rolls into the slam and he's like, I'm just going to play my way into shape, and that's it. Wow. Doesn't even practice. I don't know. What do I know? No, he obviously. <laughs> he doesn't shave, he doesn't practice anymore. <laughs> So I was depressed after losing that Wimbledon final. I think there's a lot of depressed players out there, actually. Uh, who else is who depressed? Who else is depressed? Hold on. Um, I need to stop this recording because my battery is about to die. Hold on. Depression. We were just talking about depression. And who's depressed on tour? And we could speculate about who is depressed on tour. I don't know. I, I, feel, I get the impression. You know, there's been some articles running around about 
Naomi Osaka, like the, the like deep eternal sadness of Naomi Osaka. Mm. And, um, you know, I think it gets, it gets into this weird, like media situation where, uh, the s- sports media becomes like really obsessed with a person because of what she represents, you know, I mean, mm. she, she's won two slam titles. She had that, like that really epic and complicated final against Serena last year. She's, you know, she's Japanese, um, but I, I still don't, I don't know the story. She's American raised. Um, she kind of has like an, you know, she has this, this like modern millennial teenage girl vibe, but she seems to have it all. And so the media can't resist like, you know, anointing her with all this importance, right? Like, oh, she's going to, you know, she's going to be at the top of the game for decades. She's going to be one of the all time great. She's going to win dozens of slams, whatever the case may be. And it's a lot of pressure for, a young person. I, how old is Naomi? 21? Yeah, I think 21. Yeah. She's young. I'm on the internet. She is a young, young human being. And like, I think we lose sight of that a lot, you know, like it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's just a ton of pressure. I, I don't know. And then, but then people, you know, I think a lot, some people are just like, well, she has everything. Like, what is she? There's this judgment that she should be, in, you know, like capitalizing on her gifts that, it, you know, it would somehow be a waste if she wasn't like totally engaged a, and fulfilled and also fulfilled. Like why? Sh- such a redundant argument though, isn't it? That, that one of like, they have these boxes ticked. They should, that should equal this. That's such a, that's how that, that equation doesn't, doesn't exist. You know what I mean? But people make it for sure. I'm not, that's people do, do say, do say those things, but that equation is just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't balance yeah like um people are actually complex um and they have like yeah yeah they got complex psychologies and she's a good tennis player and she's also like all of us a real person with real feelings and yeah exactly yeah, but, uh, but yeah. as we were saying, uh, I mean, if, if the players right, on the on um, the tour. Oh, oh, sorry, I'm just going to keep going because there's a lag, and I know someone's going to stop eventually. That's okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but but that's not to say that she isn't depressed, and that there aren't some players on the tour who are depressed. Like we were saying before, I didn't get to see the match, but Sloane Stevens. A lot of people were saying she looked a bit dejected uh, how part part way through her match, and that maybe in you were saying maybe she would is maybe suffering a little bit with that. I'd even put Sitsipas in there as well. I think he is. Um, but yeah, who do you think? What I'd do you put think? Yeah, somewhere there maybe. He's like even though he's man baby, and maybe he's yeah, just, Kiri- just a baby. Curios is, is just a man baby. I mean, I, I think he might, it might be masking a deeper depression. Uh, on the tennis podcast today, they were uh, talking about how Andre Rublev was struggling with depression for the last couple of years because uh, apparently this, I mean, this wrist injury really had kept him down for a long time. I mean, he was, you know, he had, he made a quarter at the US Open a couple of years ago. And it's amazing how quickly things turn in the tennis world. You know, there are times where somebody will show, like somebody will play a match like yesterday. Um, uh, who was it that played Simona Halep? It was Nicole Gibbs, this American oh, yeah. woman. Who's, you know, I don't think she's ever been ranked higher than maybe, you know, top 50. She like went to the dentist, got diagnosed with cancer and was, and you know, like, <laughs> like, 
you know, had this major life event that she had to deal with. And, um, and she came back and managed to take a set off of, off of Simona on, uh, on Arthur Ashe, which is, you know, just pretty great, pretty great story. But, um, it's really hard to know. I mean, like I, you know, and I, I feel a little self-conscious talking about it just because, you know, I'm not like, I'm not looking for depression because it entertains me. I mean, I'm, I'm just noticing it because I'm a human being who's often depressed myself. And I like, it actually makes me relate to these people a little bit more, you know, and then they don't always seem like that relatable. They kind of live in these weird bubbles and they have this strange life playing, uh, you know, playing a sport for money. Um, yeah, totally. There's, yeah, I think there's that's a really so good point to make. And, um, yeah, I think that's a good point to make. That we're not we're not seeking it out and, and pointing a finger at it. It's just we uh, can speak for myself as well. I can just see the symptoms, and it's should be fine to talk about that. Like we talk about every other aspect of them. It's just something that has come to the fore on some of the players out there. Yeah. Who, um, Hopefully, hopefully, can find a way. I did hear that about Rublev as well, and uh, and he did go through a massive slump with that injury, and apparently he was on his back for quite a while and couldn't couldn't even couldn't even get up to do to do a lot of exercises because I think he had a back injury as well, and and yeah, him saying that there was a lot of periods of just watching his his counterparts rise and keep moving forward and him not being able to play tennis and feeling really depressed. So it's, I'm, I'm actually super, super happy that he's back on the court and back winning matches and going deep in tournaments. I'm, I'm really happy about that. Good to see Rublev back. Yeah, he was, he was really impressive yesterday and, you know, he had a good run up to the open. So everybody like looked at that matchup and, um, you know, it, it seemed like a, like one to watch, you know, definitely upset potential. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, and he's, he's grown up a little bit. Like he seems like a slightly different human being than the last time he was kind of in the public eye, uh, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I sympathize. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to even really imagine like not being able to do your job at all for like, mm. you know, six months or a year, you know, and, and the training is so much a part of that. And like, if you don't do the training, you just lose the fitness, you know, you have to like do all this extra work just to get back to where you were. Um, so it's gotta be, it's gotta be such a, such a, such a grind. I mean, you know, and again, like we, we put so much attention and focus on players like, you know, like Rafa and Roger and Novak who are, you know, who seem come somehow like, you know, superhuman. Like, it's like these things don't bother them. Like if I were Roger Federer, I would be spiraling into like the deepest depression of my life right (laughs) now. Um, because like, I just like, I mean, like talk about you're confronting your own mortality. Like, you know, this was like, it's hard to imagine having a better chance at this stage of your career, uh, to win another slam against one of your greatest rivals, creating the distance. See, I still can't get over it. And, (laughs) and, and like we imagine, we imagine that for somebody like Roger, it, it's, you know, it's like, well, he just, you know, he gets up and brushes himself off and just goes back to work. And like, I guess that's inspiring, but it also seems inhuman. Like, I don't yeah, know. I think he, he went on a bit of an escapism still, still, trip I still around love Raj, Switzerland yeah. on a camping, camping trip with I, his family driving around and he's saying that, you know. I think he did. He was saying that he didn't really have much time to think about it, like looking after the kids and setting up picnic tables and stuff. And it really sounded like he was just trying to snap away from it all and distract himself and just eject out of the tennis world for a while. 
but every now and then he'd have flashbacks being like, oh, I should have done this then. I definitely should have done this at that moment. But for the most part, he just tried to erase and move on. But that must be a lot easier said than done. That, um, that stubble he's wearing at the moment, it's, um, it's highly manicured. I just had a look at it. I just had a look at a photo. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I haven't actually you know, seen he, him in this um, tournament yet. Uh, they, they, asked him, they asked him about the, the, the growth. We'll just call it the growth. And uh, <laughs> he said that he was going to take it off for the next match. I think, I think like after that performance against Nagal, he's like, you know what? I need to lose a little bit of extra. You know, I need to take some weight off. Maybe there's, you know, some aerodynamicism is being lost. <laughs> It looked didn't good. Have, it looked doesn't he have a tick or like some kind of superstition where he used to shave at the start of a Grand Slam and let it grow to the end? Is that a, is that a thing I'm imagining or an old thing that he doesn't do anymore or, or just completely made up on my part? Or It sounds like a thing. Hmm. Sounds like a thing. I think he did something like that. I think it's just every once in a while he shows up with a stubble and it, it is, yeah, it's weird. It's like Dark Federer emerges from his cave, you know, like just brooding and, you know, like really serious for a minute and maybe he's not like totally there, but like, you know, eventually like elegant, cool, composed Federer straps on the Rolex watch and gets back to work and, you know, all is well with the universe. So, um, so we'll see. He's, he's got some potentially tricky matchups along the way, but so another Probably round another, one, another walk to the semifinals. Another round one matchup that stuck out. There's two real, really ones. Well, actually, there are three matchups that really stuck out to me, which all of which I couldn't watch because uh, they happened in the middle of the night here, or ESPN was only showing the Americans and Nadal in the morning, so I couldn't watch the Canadian one. But Shapovalov and Felix Ogier-Aliassim, that was a match that stuck out to me, and. I really wanted to watch it when I woke up in the morning, but Shapovalov just destroyed Oje Alisimi. From all accounts, Felix wasn't playing anywhere near his best and his servers had gone, gone kind of missing, but the score looked like he just absolutely crushed Felix. I'm pretty happy about that. I'm a big Shapovalov fan. I like both of them, but I've been on the Shapovalov wagon for a little while now. And it's pretty exciting to see his, his latest coaching change. He's had a couple. His latest one, it's really fresh, but so far so good, right? Yeah, it, it certainly seems like. I mean, it's you know small sample size, but he just it, watching him yesterday. I got to only see the last set, um, and I also really enjoyed both players. And I think it's it's really frustrating that they they are meeting in the first round. We don't get to see more of yeah. them both, but yeah. um, Felix had been kind of on the downturn, you know, like he had such a great early summer and was the, you know, the next big thing. I think he was like the, uh, the odds makers fourth pick for winning the French open going into it, which seems absurd, but he was yeah. really great on clay this year. Um, you know, got his ranking up high enough to be a seed and Chapo, you know, who was seated the la- at least the last, year maybe two um came in unseated but and you know didn't seem like he had great form and then he hires Mikhail Yuzhny and Yuzhny like I just I remember actually the first year I went to the U.S. Open as an adult I I saw Yuzhny play Alexander Dolgopolov in the first round and I just could not stand Mikhail you know like he's just he's just one of these 
like really steely robotic guys, you know, crushing power baseliner takes no shit. And I just, you know, meanwhile, Dolgopalov is like moody and tempestuous and, you know, stylish and, you know, like totally unpredictable. So, you know, I felt really strongly about the match going one way and uh, <laughs> I think it went the other. But Yuzhny is just, you know, like maybe what Chapeau needs, right? It seems really obvious on paper and this is just a narrative we're constructing anyway. Who knows how it's actually working or going to work, but... It just seemed like Chapeau, you know, he's like doing his like rap shtick and, you know, like maybe he's just enjoying life a little too much. And he needed like some real cold Russian steel in in the mix to kind of sort him out, you know. Uh, and it, I think the thing was he just looked he just looked more controlled. Like he looked like he was playing with more margin. You know, he mm. was striking the ball really cleanly. You didn't see these wild misses where like he would, you know, that backhand would just go totally crazy and he'd frame the ball and go into the upper deck. Like he just seemed like he was controlling the match really nicely and he has all the gifts. So, um, you know, his serve is incredible if he can kind of keep that together. Uh, and I think the draw kind of opened up around him, right? I mean, the draw got blown to bits yesterday. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Well, that's good news about him playing with a bit more margin because that was always his problem. He always seemed to just go for crazy winners, even when he's out of position or just, he just, he just, he just sometimes it just felt like just stay in the rally for a second, stop trying to go for the line every every single chance you get, and a lot of the times he was hitting the back fence and stuff, and it's like. So yeah, it's good to hear that that uh, that section of his game is reined in a little bit. I think that's going to be a huge thing for him. Is he yeah, in the he's same quarter as team, Dominic Team. Uh, yes, and Andre Rublev. So that quarter is wide open now. Like Fabiano took out Dominic Team. Let's see who's seated in this quarter. Uh, Monfils, Berrettini, and Kyrgios are the only seeds remaining in that in that section of the draw. So one of those guys is likely to be a semifinalist at the U.S. Open. So that's a pretty big opportunity for Chapo. I mean, he's got Laxanen in the next round. In the third round, uh, it'll be either Monfils or Marius Copil, so probably Gael. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think at times like it seemed like maybe Shapovalov's career was kind of going in the Monfils direction. Like maybe he cared more about like being stylish and just kind of you know, like looking cool, you know, going for the big shots than, than actually yeah. winning the big matches. So I don't know. It would be nice to see him have a huge run here. Yeah, it would I be like really Kukushkin good. in that quarter too. You know why? Yeah, I well, like he took K- out um, Bautista good. Yes, in five sets. Kukushkin um, has won a lot of big upsets at slams. Like I think he beat Federer one year at Wimbledon. Really? So is Fabiano talking yeah. about Fabiano, but he's a bit of a giant slayer, but yeah. But Kukushkin um, wears Sergio Tacchini, and um, I, I sometimes I think of players as representing their clothing line rather than their country. I'm wrong. Mikhail Kukushkin never beat Roger Federer. <laughs> yeah, that's um, but, so uh, wild. But right, okay. So Kukushkin is a is a Sergio Tacchini guy, and that is that is really that's your line. Uh, that's that's Matt. a line. I yeah, I think it's I like it's and it's um they always what I like about them is they bring out a new line of clothing for every Grand Slam. Okay. So, Doesn't everyone? 
Yeah, for everyone, except I can't find what they did for women. No, but don't like, all the labels, don't all the brands. Do they what? Don't, don't all the labels do a new line for every slam? Isn't that the thing? Well, I, I, I don't know. But, the, but Sergio Tacchini definitely do, and they name their line. So, like, mm, yeah. um, for, for Paris, um, there was the Elegance line. And then, uh, and for Melbourne, for um, the Australian Open, they had the Prisma line. And then that sounds like my life in Melbourne. I was a Prisma. <laughs> oh, it's pris- Prisma for the men, and then Abstract for the women. Um, nice. Barbara Stricheva was sporting a pr- pretty nice Abstract Melbourne um, tank top and skirt, or maybe it was the dress. But they have a few different versions. But anyway, like really nice prints and stuff. Last year for New York, it was the Perspective line, and then this year it's. The contour for the men, uh, for the women, sorry, contour. And then the men have liquefy and they've got this liquid pattern. Um, okay. that, that cushions. It's not that great, actually. Nike, Nike's, I like the colors. I like the colors of Nike's US Open outfits, except I like Nike's women's US Open a lot more than the men's US Open line. Why is that? The the US the men's I, one well, has got like the the arrow down the like a like a rugby league kind of old rugby league jersey like that triangle coming down to in between just kind of like halfway down the chest oh, uh, yeah. and it looks yeah and then but the women it's it's got just a neat tidy line across the top and then I think one across the bottom or something. It looks a little, it's a lot more classic and elegant, the women's one, but the men's look like look like a 15-year-old rugby league team out there or something. It's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't noticing the Nike clothes on the men at all. Uh, and maybe it was just the pairs I was watching, but I did notice the Nike. I feel like Nike had a good year with their, uh, with their slam outfits, or at least... They're they're kind of pushing in some interesting directions. Like the the women's top uh, that Nike was rolling out this year, like it has these contrasting stripes. Like it has like vertical and horizontal stripes, and kind of this you know partially hmm. transparent uh, top that they're wearing. Um, and I thought like it doesn't look that great on TV because at a distance you kind of lose the definition to see the the detail. Um, but I really liked some of their stuff from the, from mm. the French, you know, the French, they had like the weird, like skeleton, sh- you know, like pattern shirt and, uh, and like this, like amazing floral jacket on the women's side, which I wanted desperately, but they don't make for men. Um, so I, th- I feel like they were doing pretty good, but yeah, I think I with think the they big, did. the big, I think they did pretty well this year, Nike. Yeah. And then you even keep in calling Wimbledon, it Nike. they had the really subtle, yeah, see, I've always wondered this, like, this is a Nike or Nike. I've always, in Australia, I've always grown up saying Nike, but I think it might be Nike. Uh, who knows? I guess maybe yeah. it's, I guess, you're what do you American. say, David? Maybe it's Nike. I mean, in America, it's Nike, but I mean, in Australia, you can call it whatever you want. I mean, presumably, they have yeah, ads Language doesn't even matter down here, does it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um. <laughs> um. Exactly. But they in, in Wimbledon in Wimbledon they had for the whites you know you can't really do much with white except they did a really subtle 
imprint or would you call it like a they did like on the on the white shirt they're just like a kind of embossed or really lightly embossed kind of uh woolen vest kind of imprint on the shirt you could only see it when you mm. got really close to it right. i thought that was a real nice classic little touch oh yeah it was, that one was also it was it definitely filed for me under like interesting but not something i would want to wear like it just because it to me it evoked like yeah the definitely. stereotypical like like preppy like preppy like you know high school kid you know who like uh you know takes crew lessons or something and yeah. like will probably you know you know uh loosely ties a sweater your... around the neck or whatever yeah right exactly it would that's the vibe the sweater tied around the neck and uh i didn't like those kids so much growing up but yeah it was sort of interesting to like no, superimpose yeah, that no. on a on a workout outfit you know because it just seemed it like seems really yeah stuffy and i just think with with the little amount you could work with, with the Wimbledon whites, I thought it was a pretty clever little differential point of difference kind of than the other, than from the other, the other labels, which is nice. But all through the year, they've been good in the Australian open. Some of them not, I didn't like some of the options in that slam, but for the most part, they were still better than all the other labels for me. And then in the French, yeah, they went, they went wild and it was good. And yeah, I think they killed it this year. Yeah. I just, I just shared with you guys the, um, the Rafa purple that caught my eye when he was doing, doing an interview yesterday. And you know, like I would totally buy this jacket if it didn't have the stupid Rafa horns on it. I like, I think hmm. the color is I know that always turns me off your stuff. Yeah. Well, I just, I mean, I'm not a Rafa fan. So for me, it, it like, yeah, I would just be such a poser, you know, but this happens every once in a while and it actually yeah, sometimes it makes me like a player better. You know, like I remember as a kid seeing this like Indiana Pacers basketball t-shirt once that I, I was like, oh, I really love this t-shirt, but I hate the Pacers. <laughs> like I just, and I felt this conflict, like I want to wear this clothing, but um, you know, I would be violating my, my family history. Yeah. I think sometimes I it's know, more any- effective and might be a good move for I'm thinking in from bands as well to just put out good clothes, like a good, a good shirt or a good with no real obvious reference to them, and just be like, if you know, you know. If you don't, it's still a good shirt anyway. There it is. I think that's could be a good move (laughs) for for players and bands and sports teams or whatever. You know, I think it's good. The um, just looking at that jacket, that is, I don't normally like purple, but that is a nice purple, and it's kind of like yeah, and it has this purple. like pattern that's really and, really nice. Yeah, the pattern, yeah. the patterns on the inlay of the jacket, though, right? Yeah, there's there's a singlet cool. as well as you as you call them in Australia. Um, <laughs> what do you call them? Uh, tank tops. Um, well, we have tank tops too, but the ta- there's, di- there's a diff. Yeah, and I don't really understand the difference, and I've been really moving heavily in the direction of tank tops lately. It's kind of like a personal style decision. It's because you're getting so fit. It's because of the it's running exactly. you're doing. You're starting to look real good in a tank top, aren't you, David? Yes, I am. That's, <laughs> there's no secret here. I'm, I'm trying to expose myself to the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, this Rafa, this Rafa tank top has that inlet, uh, <laughs> inlet pattern on the outside and uh, also looks terrific. Um, and I kind of need like, a, like an actual workout tank top slash singlet you know because otherwise like i go running and and like i wear these cotton 
tank tops and they're just like just dripping wet at the end. So you need like, you need that kind of like air drying material that'll like wick the moisture out and let it evaporate. I mean, Rafa will sweat through everything. It doesn't matter what the material is. Um, he is one of the sweatiest men. Yeah, he really is. Mankind. Yeah. He's so sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of, I wanted to do like, I feel like somebody should do like a, a video um, making fun of how sweaty Rafa is by like, you know, like, 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 like imitating his tics and then just having like water pouring off of his body, you know, he like picks <laughs> yeah. his clothes out of his butt and then like, you know, shuffles and yeah. like, uh, That's what's missing from you know that Australian guy who impersonates Rafa. Uh, you seen no. him on the internet? I haven't seen this one. Yeah, he's not bad, but he doesn't sweat enough. Yeah, he's always all, <laughs> he's too dry. That's right. <laughs> His tick. There was like Rafa's there were some guys. Sorry, go on. Go what on. What about Rafa's tick? No, well, you go. I just, uh, I just. How long is he going to do that? Push the hair behind his ears part of the tick into baldness. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the the, the the that part that part of his tick is is from when he had long hair and he still keeps doing it and he's going bald and I just wonder like <laughs> is he gonna is he gonna just keep that in you there? Know, is it, it's just part of it now. It's just yeah. I gotta I gotta be honest, guys. I mean, this is you're you're really you're like touching on something very important to me, which is you know attra- like attract really attractive men who are going bald. Um, you know, like I'm kind of making a list cause I, I feel like I need to use them as, as kind of style <laughs> targets or maybe just kind of lifestyle inspirations. So really, you know, like I'm looking at Rafa, I'm like, all right, show the arms, get really tan, lose your hair, um, sweat a lot. This is, this is how to live. So, you know, maybe I'm finding a little something inspirational in Rafa. Um, but his ticks, uh, you know, it's funny cause he put on that jacket we were talking about. And like to do the post game interview, and I realized this is a podcast. So it was really hard to communicate. Like, but he was still like he's still like he's just so fussy. Like he's like pulling at the material and kind of getting everything sorted and like making sure everything is like pointing out in the right way. And uh, huh. it's like I don't know. It's, some, it's somehow like it's kind of exhausting to watch. I think this is part of the thing with yeah. Rafa. I just he just wears me down. He puts on his jacket just over his bare bare chest. He doesn't put a t-shirt on first. Oh, really? Did you notice that, David? I, I didn't. Don't know if I he did, did it this time. Uh, I didn't notice that. I mean, I definitely noticed him with his shirt off. <laughs> yeah, he just. We all did. He just takes off his yeah, we all his did. playing top, and then just grabs a jacket, grabs a his his tracksuit jacket, and. Um, doesn't yeah, which I always find that's a bit strange. It's kind of a bit um, obscene, don't you think? Just to put, <laughs> just to put a jacket on naked over your naked chest. I mean, yeah, it's sort of it's like um, it's like the equivalent. It's like the top equivalent of free balling, right? Like, yes, you know, like uh, yes. my like Thank I you. went to the gym and I forgot to bring underwear and now I have to like put my jeans on. <laughs> it's like that. It's just like that, but he's doing it for everybody. For the top. Yeah, that's all I have to say. <laughs> all right. <Yeah. laughs> there is something a little bit obscene about the the Rafa Nadal experience, um, but uh, also he's an inspiration. 
Um, yeah. Anything yeah. else in the fashion world cat- catching your guys like y'all's eyes so far in the U.S. Open? Uh, the couple of players that have come across my radar who are out there playing at a Grand Slam with no clothing sponsorship at all. And the two, oh, I have to look her name up again because I've forgotten how to pronounce it. Uh, Shay Su Wei was one. Yes, yes, that's one. Uh, And the other one is Tennis Sangren, who used to have a sponsor, but now doesn't. Sangren, Um, the Trump supporter. Is he sponsored by Pizzagate? (laughs) (laughs) Sponsored by the Pizzagate conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It'd be great if he was sponsored by that pizza shop, wouldn't it? (laughs) um he tweeted two days ago take a shot every time they say not nadal but nagal so he's he's into drinking games he's into conspiracy theories um yeah he beat joe willie sanga down two sets to love yesterday and you know the american like the ridiculously pro-american espn coverage was like you know you had mcenroe talking about like what a what a baller Sandgren is. And it's, I think, I mean, there's something to it. I mean, this guy, he was a quarterfinalist at the Aussie last year, totally out of nowhere. I mean, this is, he's middle-aged for tennis, 28 years old. And, uh, he doesn't look like the most fit guy on tour. Um, he just is a total grinder and, uh, had a big win. I mean, I, it's, you know, Joe, Joe Sanga, unfortunately seems like he's, coming up on the end of his career. I ha- we haven't really seen much from him lately. Well, he it's won a title sad. earlier this year and in the um, in one of the indoor hard courts, right? In France, Mont- Montpellier maybe? He mm, won a title. So he's that. coming back a little bit. He's hanging in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, was, I watched this match because there was an American playing in it and so ESPN was showing it. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, and I was watching the score of the Felix Ojeelis and Shapovalov match at the same time, just wishing that was on instead, ESPN. Um, but yeah, I was kind of surprised. He was actually playing really, really well. I don't like the guy at all, but I have to give it to him. He was playing really well. Uh, his ground strokes were incredible. What do you th- I was sort of the last two sets or something. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, what do you think about uh, Sangha's going blonde? I'm I'm watching some like match highlights now to see what what uh, Sangren was wearing. It looks like he's just kind of wearing like a white top and blue shorts. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. very very simple. Like he just went to he stopped over at H and M and like was like just give me some tennis gear well yeah i think he i think he did because i think at the end of the match i didn't actually see this but i saw someone tweet it uh you know people always ask for the headband the sweatband and stuff like that uh, and someone was asking him and i think he said well no i'm gonna hold on to these because i had to buy them <laughs> <laughs> come on oh, boy do better than that he definitely can afford yeah. to buy some clothes i mean he was a quarter finalist at yeah. a major, but you know it, he might be, you know he might be like building some kind of bunker in the woods, you know, prepare, you know, he might be a prepper. I think there's like a, a strong overlap <laughs> yeah, between people preparing for he the definitely apocalypse. Could be a prepper. <laughs> <laughs> and people who believe that Pizzagate is a thing. Yeah, he's wearing like a plain white T-shirt. <laughs> like I managed well, to find an actual but picture. But Shea on the other hand. Is rocking the just the U.S. Open merch? 
She just like Which went I to the love. store and just picked something yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember this happened yeah. to Simona Halep a few years ago where like her she lost her sponsorship. I think this was right before she won the French Open. And she was wearing some like, you know, yeah. some kind of bootleg. <laughs> I think <laughs> like she she gear. she saw a dress design or something and got it got it copied, mm. just got it made. She was like, Oh, I don't have a sponsor. I like this design. Just make us one of these. I think she just I don't I can't remember who ended up making it. But um yeah, that was pretty funny. She just had to go sponsorless and just picked out some some dress she liked. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I just saw that picture of Tana Sanger and it's just it's just like a white a white T shirt from Target. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he really he didn't put in the effort. I, I'm not I'm not giving it up for tennis in this particular case. I mean it's it would kind take of funny a lot for me to give it up for tennis. In how like yeah. low rent yeah. 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 He plays Pospisil in the next round. Yeah, Pospisil took out your boy Hachinov. Yes, he did. Alex, how are your feelings? Well, you know, uh, Rublev coming back on the scene makes that a bit easier to take. Those three Russians have always kind of been overtaking each other. And before Rublev went out with his injury, Rublev was on t- on top of that little that little cluster, I think. Uh, and then since then, Medvedev's obviously come up and he's rising to the top and he's on top. But Hachinov's always been a little bit streaky. He's been quite good lately, but he's always been a little bit streaky. So, yeah, I'm not super surprised. But like we were saying before, it's pretty good that Pospisil... I'm pretty happy that Pospisil came through just because I'm getting to know him a bit more and more based on him being pretty outspoken about what's going on with the money inside of tennis. He's on the Players' Council, so he's been really vocal about what he thinks about the money and the percentage of revenue that Grand Slams get uh, versus how much they give out to the players, and he thinks that's quite out of balance in in relation to usually the examples he gives are um, the the NFL and golf, and he compares them and he makes pretty solid arguments to be honest. Yeah, he's wondering like, um, yeah, where does all the money go? Like, yeah, you know, it's it's going into the pockets of the um, uh, the business owners of the tournaments and, and things, you know, so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, like this sort of thing has played out in the in the big sports leagues in the US multiple times. It's really interesting because, you know, the like America thinks it's like this, you know, uh, this zone of business friendly capitalism or whatever. And meanwhile, like professional sports is like this weird socialized playground of billionaires, you know, like they these like extraordinarily wealthy people, you know, get to purchase sports teams for outrageous sums and then kind of like they bend the will of the of the cities that they play in to like have the cities pay for many of the accoutrement like the you know like the city has to build a stadium or will like just pack up and leave so that hmm. you have these situations where the players will organize they like form unions and you know it's it's this strange dynamic because you have the players are rich athletes 
you know, they're already, they're, they're all doing extremely well. They're not wealthy in the extraordinary, like one percenter, one percent of one percenter like way that they're mm. the team owners are. Mm. So they organized to get more money. And in the NBA, like the salaries went completely bananas recently because the players successfully managed to push for a bigger slice of the pie. And so now, you know, this point is made a lot about money in tennis. Um, players like, you know, players ranked around a hundred in the tennis world are making, you know, I mean, they're making a living, but they're, they're definitely not getting rich. You know, maybe they make half a million to a million dollars in a year or something like that. They can scrape by a lot of that has to go right back into the, the their business. Whereas like the, the hundredth best player in the NBA probably has a contract that's, that's netting him, you know, $60 million or something. Um, so there's this huge imbalance and, you know, I think a lot of it, a lot of it comes from just like the economics of the sport, like how are tickets sold? Like what are the TV broadcasting rights? Like, you know, tennis has this weird structure, I think that kind of undermines it here and there, but there is definitely a top heaviness. I mean, mm. I think it's really interesting. Tennis, like every match is played for money, basically. You know, at the big events, there's a purse. Like the second round match winner makes 100 grand or something today. And that's yeah, a big I saw deal. Yeah, in the for, app in the draw, know, yeah. For everybody. Yeah, they're showing it mm. in the app, which is weird. Um, mm. But... I guess it's just kind of like, you know, like hammering that point home that, the, you know, there's there's a lot on the line for these people. But it's so directly tied to performance. If you're the 100th best player in the NBA and you play for a shitty team like my New York Knicks, like you might not win a game all year and you're still getting paid that same amount of money. You know, they so. Yeah, you're anyway, on a salary. Uh, it, yeah, because it's on a salary and they're, they have these long contracts, whereas in tennis, it's like, no, it's all results based. And so that makes it even more tense. And like these guys get hurt and they're out for six months. They're just losing income. They have there's no support for them. <laughs> That's so, pretty perverse when you um, think about it. They're just playing. They're playing yeah. for their their livelihoods. Yeah, it's really intense. And I th so I think those guys who are on the bubble where it's like, you know, you're 150, 200 in the world, like maybe like you're just hoping you can get into the top 100, get some main draw, you know, slam events and cash those checks. Like it is really fraught yeah, for those, those people. Those people, um, um, when you start getting into the hundreds, struggling to break even. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's so one thing I want to transition to talk about um about how like TV coverage works for tennis because uh, we've been like exchanging a bunch of frustrated messages about this. And I think there's kind of a relationship here. Like, so you guys are getting the ESPN feed um, because for, for whatever reason, nobody in Australia has yeah. the rights to the whole thing or do, nobody's doing their own coverage, probably because it's in the middle of the night. And I mean, and I'm an American and I'm in America right now and I'm still frustrated with the coverage because I feel like they spend a third of the time just talking at the desk while there's all these matches going on and the coverage is super heavily like American tilted, which, you know, I kind of, I kind of understand because, but I, I just feel like they're, they're bending over backwards to try and get people who are not tennis fans to like the sport without like showing what, I find really interesting about the sport. Like they don't show the diversity. They don't, they're, they're not focused. Like it seems to me like they should just be jumping around to like whatever yeah, match is totally. most dramatic and like really focusing on 
everything. Instead, they just, they, they talk about if Serena's playing, it's like Serena and Venus are both playing today. They are going to be talking about Serena and Venus or showing their matches for at least five hours out of their coverage. (laughs) And it's like, I mean, they're great. They're wonderful. Like they're amazing, but like there's so much going on and it just feels totally. Yeah, totally. Like there'll be, might be a, a, you know, there's a match that's been going on for four hours and it's in the fifth set tie break and it's really tense and there's a lot of drama going on on court, but they'll still be over showing an American who's ranked like 75th playing someone else who's ranked like a hundredth on court 14 or something like this. And there's like 50 people in the crowd. They'll be showing that over that. You know what I mean? It's like, come on. Yeah, or or like yeah. one of the big three, like, okay, they showed Rafa playing John Millman yesterday while, like, which was totally, I mean, Millman puts up a fight and it wasn't like an unwatchably bad match. But they would have shown it, it regardless, one-sided. yeah. And meanwhile, you had uh, Sabalenka, yeah, you had Sabalenka and Azarenka like in an absolute bruiser of a match. Like just going toe to toe, these two Belar- Belarusian, Belarusian. I don't know I'd how say you say Belarusian. It. Um, go on. Belarusian. Yeah, Belarusian. I thought it was Belarusian, but they were saying it different on TV, so I, I shouldn't assume that they know more than me. But uh, these two Belarusian superstar women, like last generation, current generation, just punishing the ball, like really battling, and like you could get you'd, like maybe they would like look in on the match for a game. And then they just go back to like watching Rafa pick his clothes out of his butt. You know, it's like, I know. I just, I, I just feel like, you know, I was, I was already a sports fan. Like for me, when I, when I got really into tennis, it's like when I started to discover all those secondary storylines and the extra, you know, like really dug deep into it and got this sense of like how busy and crazy that, you know, like the entire field is. And I feel like sports fans are savvier yes. than they're giving them credit for. I feel like they kind of treat yes, sports fans like they're idiots. And Australia does it too, definitely. When it's when it's when it's the Australian Open, oh, yeah. the TV coverage is any Australian who's playing no shot. So they we're guilty of it as well. But I feel like there are more Americans in the draw, and they're more broadly scattered yep. across the draw. So it makes it super frustrating when it's when they're showing you know what I whatever random example I gave before of like the lowest ranked American. They just they just go in on that, and it's and it's and I think you're right. I think they do give the the viewing sports fans less credit than than they deserve. Uh, just going to whatever match is more exciting would maybe draw more people in, rather than them going and flicking it on and being like, oh yeah, I guess this is okay, but oh, or it could be an amazing match. It's not to say it couldn't be an amazing match. Yeah, but. Yeah, I think the 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 default is too stuck on. Right, but just like yeah, like like yeah, like sh- you know, shake it up, show show the variety. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Matt? Well, you what know, do you think about the it's, TV it's coverage. A, it's a thing, you know, that we're used to. I think um, in sports, but yeah, it never gets never makes it easier to take just the nationalism of. Um, the yeah. commentators and, uh, and the coverage in general assumes that we, because we were born in a particular place, care more about a player that was also born in the same country with these artificial borders. Let's say they're from the United States of America or from Australia or where, wherever. And, um, I, yeah, there's such an opportunity for us to, to look at the players and 
bond with them or identify with them because of their style of play or their personality or the type of fashion they choose to wear or a whole bunch of things rather than the country and their accent. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think, I don't know, like in, in U.S. sports leagues, I, I, I think there's something like sort of charming to the kind of like, you know, the local nationalist kind of vibe. Like, you know, like I care about my home city and therefore I root for these teams. Like, because I, I also think there's, there's a way in which that's, that can be just a healthy expression of like, oh, well, these are, you know, like this group represents me somehow. But it's it's just so taken for granted and uh and it's reinforced by the mm. coverage um you know i think uh you know like yeah there's just so many more interesting people out there like I, I i mean you know i think part of the problem with the u.s coverage is that the american players are really not the most compelling bunch right now like i think you know when i'm in when i'm in australia and watching the local coverage i realize like oh you know you've got guys like demonor and millman and curios and just like you know, uh, you know, uh, Gavrilova on the women's side, like Ash Barty, like you just, I feel like there's just a more interesting, likable bunch, but it's totally subjective, you know? And it's, why not? I I guess they just have to choose some people to focus on and that's what they think the audience cares about. So they just keep doing it. But I don't know. There's, there's this other element in the coverage where, you know, like John McEnroe is always like talking about, you know, like they'll talk about things like, uh, the Romanian crowd is really going crazy for Simona Halep. It's like maybe Simona Halep has fans yeah. everywhere now. Yeah. Like, you know, is it is that that big of a stretch? Like, the only people chanting her name yeah. are from Romania. Like, like she's awesome and she's been around for a while. Like, I've people that love too. her everywhere. It's a bit Why not? Isn't it? Yeah, it's totally true. So yeah. they kind of make these assumptions, you know. Well, um, so I have one. Like, I want to end with a suggestion that nobody's going to take seriously until they, they start digging through our archives in 10 years. Um, but I, I was thinking about this last night. I feel like tennis has this incredible opportunity where they should just take all of the broadcasting rights for like the Oak for the slams and make them totally public domain. Like they should open it up so that, you know, the, all of those outer court matches like are just free, like free to the public. And then what would happen is you would have, you know, people who are like passionate nerds like us or, you know, maybe like us, but with more time, um, like calling matches themselves. You know, you don't like it's crazy to me that I'm watching like one of the premier events of tennis and I like turn on like some outer court match and it's just silent, like nobody's calling it. And I think it's all because of the rights, you know, it's like. And, and also, like, you guys in Australia right now, you can't even watch all the matches because nobody is streaming all of them and they have all these region restrictions. It's like, guys, this, this sport could be so much more popular if you had enthusiastic people, like, making it, you know, like, promoting it. I agree um, 100%. And I think, like, this is, you know, I work in video games and this is kind of like, this is what we've seen. We've seen this in games. Like, people, like, there's just communities of people out there doing, like, you know, like producing their own shows, their own content. So like the, the ATP doesn't need to pay for everybody who, who calls a game. Like they could just totally, uh, you know, like crowdsource this. And, uh, I think you would see people suddenly interested in what's going on. on. Yeah. It's kind of like fan fiction. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. In a way. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it, it, it is. is. It's just it a is, funny Matt. way to it's frame like, it, but I, I it think is. what happens is that the uh, yeah the the like so, but you just have this old structure. It's like this old world institution, and they're controlling of their property, right? I mean, like I get that. Like it's uh, you know probably a billion dollar industry. It's really like it makes a lot of people a lot of money. Like they don't want they want to control it. They want it they want it to be in the hands of people they know and trust. But that's like very 20th century broadcasting. You know, I think like some sport is going to like realize that they could that, just That is cool. You know. Like they could open we, it up. In Australia we have these comedians called Roy and HG. And um, they've done some, like, alternative commentary for the big rugby league matches we have each year called the State of Origin. Ah, cool. And, um, yeah. That is uh, – that's pretty funny because they just take the piss and they, like, they make all these innuendos and um, it makes watching the rugby league a lot more fun. Um, so, yeah, if you had – if you could sort of crowdsource some, some tennis commentary – for the outer courts and stuff, yeah, you, you could um, you find new stars, like new new voices, um, new ways, of, new takes on things, a new way to enjoy the spectacle. Yeah, I agree, and it's it's I don't I don't like the fact that exactly. the grand slams are treated yeah. as a separate whole separate business, and to to get you you know we watch the tennis all year round on I watch it on tennis TV, but. As soon as the Grand Slams come around, that's not on tennis TV, and you have to go hunting for streams and sign up to things for fourteen-day trials to get it, to try and get it, and use a VPN to get into some other country to get into it that way. And it's like, why are these four Grand Slams so separate from the general tennis streaming world? It doesn't make any sense. And then you go again, all oh, the Davis Cup, well, all the little, all the little, you know, all the other side events and tournaments they're all separate they don't come through the general tennis streaming channels generally and it's just so it just segregates everything so much and it i think it just is detrimental to the whole thing in general totally agree it's it's such a mess like i mean i pay for uh american cable so i can watch the tennis channel i pay for tennis channel plus so i can get like certain streaming events uh including some wta now i pay for tennis tv so i get like extra atp coverage but it's just like it's so hit or miss what you're actually getting for the different things and it's just it's just silly like like if you want to expand the reach of the sport like lower the barrier to entry you know like maybe something happens on one of these outer courts or some, some kid like does a, does a show about, uh, you know, a match that happened on court 12 yesterday at the U S open. And like, it goes viral because it's out there, but right now everything's yeah. behind a wall. And I mean, I also, Oh, and I'm also paying for ESPN plus to get the outer courts right now, but it gets me the outer courts, but not Armstrong because Armstrong is on ESPN three. And for some reason, my cable provider doesn't have ESPN oh, three. Mess. So I can watch ESPN and I can watch ESPN plus, but I miss like, it's just ridiculous. You know, they need socialism to now. This shit out already. <laughs> yeah. Socialism now. Yeah. No money. Nobody gets paid anymore. They all <laughs> yeah, get paid they play the for same the love thing. of the game and everyone has enough social services. So they don't need the money anyway. Right. Yeah, do, do you think no, Jack, probably more likely go to go for it than Federal or Nadal? 
<laughs> Apparently, at the player meeting yesterday, uh, Dan Evans, Dan Evans called out Novak Djokovic uh, and said, oh, "I heard about this. Are you willing?" to like go on strike for this. Cause apparently, yeah, apparently the top guys are, I mean, I guess they're open to, to putting pressure on, but I think that like, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, it's like, they, they may have to actually strike. They may actually have to like walk out of a slam. Yeah. I heard about something about this. So they're talking about, and I wonder if Novak and Roger about, will do talking that. About boycotting um, slams. And, uh, and I think Dan Evans got up and was like, Come on, come on, guys! This is ridiculous. Are you actually going to do it? Is this? Are we just? Are we just saying this to try and put pressure on, or you, will you say right now you'd actually boycott a slam? Uh, I, I, I actually don't know what the response was to that, but uh, I kind of like that he called him out on that because they can sometimes they talk about this, and I don't know. I've never, I've never heard of. Actually, has it happened? I feel like maybe it has happened before. Big players boycotting a slam, or, or that's something we should look into. I'm not sure. Mm. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's, well, I don't think, I don't remember there being ever a strike in tennis. There was obviously the period where there was, um, you know, like during that Rod Laver's era where professionalism came in and there was the, you couldn't play the Grand Slams if you were a professional because it was still amateur. Yeah. But I think there might have been a, yeah, we're yeah. going to have to dig into the, to the history and yes, do, because, do a special, um, special strike report. action does get you the goods. That's how workers um, improve their conditions. They withdraw their labor, and then the bosses don't have um, a product to make or a service to sell anymore. Yeah, and in this case, it's like really extreme because, like, who is ESPN going to focus their coverage on when all of a sudden you only have, uh, you only have, what do you call them? Uh, scabs, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, uh, people who, yeah. who cross the picket line, uh, playing, playing, ten- like it's going to be like, like I think Alex is on, is on track to actually be a replacement player at the Australian <laughs> open when they, when they walk out next year. So, you know, it could be, could be Alex out there. Scab playing uh, all these other and, little amateurs. I mean, I would watch. <laughs> yeah. Federer would, would, would yeah. not strike. He'd just be out there just crushing like. <laughs> so he could yeah, get yeah, another yeah, slam. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't drop us. He doesn't drop a game the entire tournament. En route to his twenty-first. <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe we should wrap up. We've been. We're definitely way over an hour. We've been talking now. a lot of shit. So, we've been talking a lot of shit. Yeah, Alex, you're gonna have to edit out all the shit talking. But uh, yeah, that was fun.